Okay, now we're going to move to our scripture reading, and that is in John 1, verses 14 through 18. If you'd like to follow along, this is found on page 886 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning and welcome again to uh, the Brookside Campus of Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus, and I'm really delighted that you've uh, chosen to be with us this morning, especially if you're newer um, or this is your first time uh, at Christ Community or maybe even your first time at church or first time at church in a really long time. I'm really glad that you're here, and hopefully you've uh, found this to be a welcoming place. I know that visiting a new church is an easy thing to do. So um, thank you for being with us this morning, and um, again, hope you're enjoying your time. We'd love to meet you. As we turn to look at this passage of Scripture that Holly read for us in this series in John chapter 1 that we've been going through here in Christmas, I'd love to uh, just say a a prayer uh, over us, inviting God to help us to understand His Word. In the language of John chapter 1, we've heard a lot about the Word, and the Word is God Himself, that God is a speaking God, and His ultimate Word to us is Jesus. So let's pray now that uh, God would make His Word known to us. So Father in heaven, we pray uh, that as You have spoken in the past and in many different ways through prophets, and um, You've recorded those for us in the Scriptures, that now as we read uh, these words that You have inspired Uh, that you would make it clear to us exactly what you would have us to learn. And would we stand in greater awe of Jesus for having looked at this text together. And it's in his name, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen. Well, Christmas is perhaps, at the same time, the most fundamental, the most foundational, maybe a better way to say, the most foundational, and at the same time, bizarre, mind-bending elements of the Christian faith. Because what is the Christmas story really about? Well, it's, it's not just that a baby was born to an unmarried virgin. I mean, that's not a particularly normal part of the story, right? Uh, but, but it's more than that. Uh, it's that a, the baby who was born to Mary in Bethlehem during the reign of the Roman Empire was God, is God that the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything came as a baby. It's that the all-knowing, all-powerful, uncontainable, infinite creator, sustainer, ruler of all that is or ever will be now has a belly button. God became human. And you thought the most implausible thing about Christmas was the fat guy at the North Pole who somehow manages to travel the globe in 24 hours delivering presents to all the children of the world, right? 
No, that pales in comparison to what the gospel, the story of Christmas truly is. And as is so often the case, the fact, the reality is far stranger and also far more wonderful than the fiction. And yet we must feel its strangeness in order to embrace its wonder. And I think especially here uh, in Kansas City, in the heart of the Midwest, um, the Christmas story, it's so easy for it to become too familiar to be at all scandalous, too domesticated to be shocking. But in John, in his account of the coming of Jesus, which we've been calling this sort of cosmic view of Christmas, in John chapter 1, helps us, I think, feel afresh how truly strange and how truly wonderful what happened in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago truly is. Because you see, if you take away Christmas, uh, not, not the celebration of Christmas, not the Christmas trees and the presents, but if you take away Christmas, you no longer have Christianity. Because at the heart of Christianity is the reality that Jesus himself was not merely a man, but was truly God. And this is what John is going to show us and what he makes clear this morning in this passage that we're looking at. And this is truly, I think, the, the hardest, most shocking of all the Christian doctrines. It was surprising to the people who first heard the news of it in the first century. It was surprising to the people who knew the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, which Jesus said, I, I stand in the long tradition of this. I am the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises. Even those who knew those promises, the thought that God came as a human took them by surprise. And it's still shocking and unique in our world today. When you think about the founders of the great religions of the world. You think about uh, Muhammad and Islam. Muhammad could claim to point the way to, to God, to Allah, and to establish the, the pillars of Islam. But Muhammad never said, never would say, it would be utterly blasphemous in, in the Islamic faith for him to say, Muhammad to say about himself that he was God. No Muslim would ever say that. No, Muhammad never claimed that for himself. Or, or think about Buddhism. Perhaps you have something a, a bit closer, maybe in Buddhism, with the kind of truly enlightened one in Buddha. But even Buddha points people to the, the noble path. He doesn't say, come to me, your hope is in me. Rather, uh, he says, your hope is in what I have discovered, what I have attained. You can also attain if you follow the path. But you see, Christianity is completely different in this regard. In Christianity, Jesus doesn't just point to God. He doesn't just point to a path to know God. He says, I am God. I am all reality in a person. No other sane, human, respected religious leader in the world says anything else like that about themselves. And yet we're here we have John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word, which we know as we've been reading along in John chapter 1, the Word is God, very God of very God. The Word become flesh. And what we're going to see as we look at these verses this morning is that our God became one of us 
to rescue us. That he became one of us. He didn't just become like us, but truly, fully became one of us to rescue us. And this is the first thing that we encounter when we look at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, that God became human, that God has a body. Again, he didn't just become like one of us, he actually became one of us. Look again closely at John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says that the word, the eternal God, was made, became human flesh. This is where the Christian word incarnation comes from. Maybe you've heard that word incarnation before. Incarnation, it just means, it's, a, it's actually a Latin root, but it just means uh, in, in fleshment, that it, someone has come in the flesh. In fact, that word incarnation, if you think about that middle, the, the carnation part of that word, you, you might even hear an echo of that if you've ever ordered uh, carnitas at a Mexican restaurant. Delicious, right? But what does that mean? It means meat. It means flesh. And that's the, the vocabulary that John uses to describe this moment, flesh. Uh, he even had available to him other words that could have just been more generically body. But John gives us an even more bold, an even more visceral word of flesh. The word became flesh, muscle and bone, blood and breath. This is the stunning claim of Christmas that God became a handful of cells in his mother's womb, that he experienced the mess and beauty of childbirth, that he depended on his mother for sustenance, that God cried when he was hungry, that he was changed when he was dirty, that he was carried and comforted, that he learned to crawl and walk and talk, that God grew, God went through puberty, he dealt with hormones, he felt every human emotion because he was human. God has a body. He got hurt. He bled. He had to take bathroom breaks in between sermons and miracles. He felt the whip, the nails, he knew, he knows what it's like to die. And, and he rose again with a body. Uh, you see, he didn't just give up his spirit and then transport himself to some ethereal realm and then just kind of appear to people as a ghost later on when he died on the cross. No, he died and his body was put into a tomb and he rose again with a body. And he ascended to heaven with a body. Jesus, the God-man, remains forever in a resurrected body, even now, today. The Word, without ceasing to be the Word, eternal God, became flesh, took on a body, and lived with us. Truly and fully God, truly and fully human, and those things held together, God's true humanity and his true divinity, those things held together are what make Christianity Christian. 
You see, in the history of the church, disaster and and the loss of the clarity of the gospel has always come when one of those things is diminished, when we either diminish the deity of God or the humanity of God in, in Jesus. And there were early confusions and even heresies that claimed that Jesus was, yes, he's truly God, but he only appeared to be human. Or on the other side, that there were heresies, confusions that said, well, God, he wasn't really truly God. He was truly a human being, but he only had an appearance of being God or he had a special experience of, of the divine consciousness or a nearness to God like no one else has ever had, but he actually wasn't truly, fully, actually God. And, and, and Christians today, people today, can still fall into either one of those traps when they think about Jesus in general, you know, generalization, but more progressive mainstream uh, Christian traditions tend to, to minimize Jesus' deity, his godness. While more theologically conservative Christians, rightly wanting to emphasize the deity of Jesus, have often minimized his true humanity fear, uh, for fear of making him too human. But you see, the good news of the gospel is you can't make Jesus too divine. You can't make him too human because he is truly, fully human and truly and fully God. Fully both, truly both, without mixture, change, division, or separation. As a key early Christian creed put in. Okay, but now you're probably thinking, Bill, this is all interesting enough, at least, or kind of tracking with you, but why does it really matter? What difference does this make? What difference does it make that Jesus was truly God and truly human? Why is it so disastrous to to get that wrong? Because God became one of us to save us, to rescue us from our sin. God has a body to rescue us from our sin. Jesus says repeatedly in the Gospels that he came to seek and save what was lost that he, he came to forgive sins. And, and you see, this is because he, Christians believe that what is most wrong with the world is not something that's out there, but something that's in here. The problem isn't outside of us, that the problem is inside of us. And, and this language of sin is, is Christian shorthand. It's, it's biblical language for the name of that problem. This problem that we prefer ourselves over others, that we ultimately prefer ourselves over the other, over God himself, that there is a a fatal flaw in each and every one of us, that that we are bent in on ourselves, that we're turned in on ourselves, this fallen, ruptured, broken human condition. Have you ever known someone who, uh, because of their anger, their fear, their pride, their selfishness over time, has isolated themselves from everyone they loved, and maybe even eventually from everyone who loved them. I had an uncle like that. And the sad reality of our state as human beings is left to ourselves. That is the trajectory for every fallen human life. We left God, we turned in on ourselves, we cut ourselves off from the only source of life in the universe. Every one of us is is a cut flower in a vase 
stunningly beautiful, and yet destined to wither, to wilt, and to die. You see, what we desperately need is a new human who isn't subject to this fatal flaw, who, who isn't a cut flower, who can live a life of true selflessness, who can keep every promise they make, who never lies. But there is no one like that. In fact, when you think about the very best human beings you know, the very best human beings who have ever lived, the ones who might be closest to that, they're actually the ones who are most aware of their own shortcomings. They have the most humility about their own brokenness and fallenness, right? C.S. Lewis once quipped, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. And this is the great human dilemma. See, only a human being could be punished for humanity's sins. Only a human can suffer and die. Only a human can pay the penalty. But there is no human worthy. There's no human who can pay the, the price. Only a human owed the debt. But only God could pay it. And so God in his incomprehensible and tender and faithful and loyal and self-sacrificing love takes on flesh. Jesus, the God-man, is able to be the new human who doesn't have the fatal flaw, who is able to live the life that we should have lived and therefore as a human die the death that you and I should have died. He's able to die the death we deserve because he is a human. He's able to pay what we owe because he is God. He has to be both. And we could end the sermon there and Maybe you're like, that would be great, Bill. We'll just stop the sermon there. But the thing is, there's more. The gospel's even greater than just that. There's more than this. God doesn't just have a body. He moved into the neighborhood. It isn't just that Jesus became human, took on a body so that he could rescue humans and forgive their sins and take them away to an ethereal heaven, some non-physical realm. Look again at John 1.14. And the word became flesh, that's what we just talked about, and dwelt among us. Became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, that word, this idea of, of dwelling among us, is literally the idea of God setting up a tent with us. He set up a tent. He moved in. He's camped with us. This is how Eugene Peterson in the message translates this verse. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. God came to live with us on planet earth. And this has been the plan from all along, from the very beginning. From the very beginning in the, the Garden of Eden, God dwells with his people. His presence is with them in the world that he has made, on the planet that he has made. But when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they were pushed out of God's presence. And yet God does not give up on his plan, his desire to live with his people in the world that he has made. And so he calls together this family of Abraham and eventually he sends his presence among them. Moses, one of the greatest leaders of God's people in the Old Testament, receives instructions from God on Mount Sinai to build a tent. They called it the tabernacle. And it was 
a tent that sat in the middle of all the people's tents where they lived as they were traveling through the wilderness. It was a tent where God's presence dwelled among the people, where he lived in their neighborhood. And that tent was eventually replaced by a permanent structure of the temple. And yet what we find that when Jesus comes, the temple now is even obsolete because God's presence is with us. Jesus even refers to his body in the Gospels as a temple. This is part of the reason that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were so angry with Jesus because he was setting himself up as an alternate temple. Jesus saying, now I'm the place where you come to meet God, to experience his presence. And when God's presence returns to his people, the whole world begins to be renewed. Because you see, Jesus isn't just about saving some immaterial part of a human. Because to be a human being is to have a body. You can't, in the end, be a human without one. This idea that somehow our bodies are kind of yucky or disposable and that we just need to escape them and be absorbed into a spiritual heaven, that's, that's a Greek philosophical idea. That's not a biblical idea. A part of the horror of death in the Bible is it is this ripping apart of the material and the immaterial part of what it means to be human. The hope in the scriptures is always for a resurrection, a reuniting of those two. The goal is to be reunited in new bodies, just as Jesus was in his resurrection. Jesus is going to redeem everything. God became one of us to rescue us from decay. This is why Jesus did miracles. They they weren't just sort of magic tricks, right? Jesus did miracles. He healed people's bodies. He multiplied bread and fish to feed people's bodies. He turned water into wine. Again, these aren't just miracles that are are magic tricks to Jesus showing off that he can do these things. No, they're, they're signposts pointing to the redemption of all things. That all things are gonna be healed. All things are gonna be renewed. Because when Jesus' presence moves into the neighborhood, everything begins to be transformed. One of my favorite things to do with my daughters, Lucy and Isla, is to watch the PBS show Nature. And and for one and a half year old Isla, that means just running up to the TV constantly exclaiming over what animal ever animals on the otter or fish or rabbit or whatever is on the screen. She just goes crazy. She loves it. But for four-year-old Lucy and me, it means us sitting back on the couch, kind of trying to look around Isla, screaming and pointing at something on the, the screen, and just marveling at the unbelievable beauty and stunning creativity of the world that God has made. So just last Saturday, Lucy and I were watching with, with Isla, and we learned about this, this frog. I think it's a toad, actually. I don't know what the difference is. Uh, but there's this toad that it, it doesn't hop. It has frog-like legs. It doesn't, it crawls. And then when it gets scared, it rolls up to a ball and it just rolls down the hill. That's how it gets away. It doesn't hop. Amazing. Uh, We also learned about this tiny little gecko lizard. It's probably the size of a grain of rice, not much bigger. And something that small would just, you would think, in in a raindrop would drown this thing. And yet it has this unbelievable skin that that sheds every drop of water instantly. It, It can't sink. It can't drown crazy. God isn't going to throw all of that on the cosmic trash heap one day. 
He made it. He loves it. And he's going to renew it. It's why we sing joy to the world on Christmas, at Christmas time. Do you remember the second verse of joy to the world? It goes like this, joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Fields and floods, rocks, hills, plains, they rejoice when God becomes human to rescue them from decay. This is how the Apostle Paul, who was an early follower of Jesus, one of the greatest leaders in the early church, who wrote many of the the letters that we have in our New Testament, the second half of the Bible, in one of those letters that he wrote to a church in Rome, in Romans chapter 8, he writes these words. He says, For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. You see, creation was subjected to decay not because of anything that it did. You know, the creation, the dirt, the ground, the trees, they didn't rebel against God, but because of our rebellion, the whole thing is cast into bondage to decay. But when God redeems human beings, when he himself becomes a human, when God moves into the neighborhood and rescues humanity from sin and death, creation is liberated from its bondage to decay also. The one who made us has come to live with us. Now, at the risk here of sounding like an infomercial, I have to say, but wait, there's more. There is still more in this text for us. Not only does God have a body, not only has he moved into the neighborhood, but he has showed us his face. John says in verse 14, which we've been looking at, that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. And then he goes on to say this in verses 16 through 18. He says, from his fullness, from Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. Keep that in mind. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Now, in order to understand this passage, we have to pick up on this little phrase, grace and truth. Because it, it, grace and truth, this, that, those two words together, they translate and recall a phrase from the Old Testament that, that occurs over and over and over again. If you've read through any of the Psalms, you've, you've probably heard it. It's usually translated, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That little phrase, grace and truth, is getting at that same set of words, Steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love, grace. Faithfulness, truth. It's a phrase that marks God's promise to love his people and be faithful to his promises always, no matter what the cost. And there's one place in the Old Testament where all of these themes come together in one spot. God's promise, grace and truth, steadfast love and faithfulness, they all come together in this one spot. And and there's no doubt that John is reflecting on this moment as he writes these verses. 
in this place, it's in the book of Exodus. In Exodus is the second book of the Bible. God has used Moses to deliver God's people out of Egypt, not because they were anything special, not because they deserved it, but simply because he loved them. He delivers them out of bondage in Egypt, and he takes them out into the wilderness, and they're at Mount Sinai, and God reveals his law, his teaching, his instructions, his promise, his covenant to them. An incredible gift of grace. And in that moment, Moses, who's on the mountain with God, asks God, can I see your glory? Can I see your face? Listen to Exodus 33 here. Moses said, please, he's speaking to God, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But God said, you cannot see my face, Moses, for man shall not see me and live. If I show you my face, Moses, you're you're dead, you're going to die. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, Moses, I will put you in a cleft in the rock. I'll put you in a crack in the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I'll take my hand away and you shall see my back. But my face, Moses, you shall not see. And John affirms that again here in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. And yet, and yet, he says, the Son has made him known. Jesus, God made human, fully God, fully human, has made him known. We have seen his glory, verse 14. Because of Jesus, truly God, fully God, truly human, fully human, we can see God's face and live. We can see God's face. Mary kissed that face. The religious leaders at Jesus' trial spit on that face. The Roman soldiers punched that face. The face of God In Jesus, we behold the very face and glory of God. Jesus tells us the whole story of what God is like. Indeed, we cannot truly know God apart from Jesus. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, he puts it this way. He says, do you want to know what the character of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the holiness of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the wrath of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the forgiveness of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the glory of God is like? Study Jesus all the way to that wretched cross. Study Jesus. In Jesus, we see the glory, the only glory that can satisfy our souls. See, God became one of us to rescue us from our despair. Because you see, as human beings, we were created for glory. We long for glory. It's why we love nature. It's why Isla runs up to the screen when she sees an otter, because it's glory. 
We love glory and art and nature. It's why we, we love sex and music. These are things that give us just a taste of transcendence. It's why they're so addictive, not because they're bad, but because they're so good. But if we look only to those things, we will always be disappointed because we'll only ever get this tiny glimpse and it's always fading. It's just out of grasp. It never satisfies. It always leaves us wanting more. It's never enough. But in the face of Jesus, the face of God, you behold the glory. In him we have received grace in place of grace. The law of Moses revealed something of God's glory, but in Jesus we have the fullest and final revelation of the glory of God, grace in place of grace. And in Jesus, in the incarnation, we find the love that we have always longed for. John, who wrote the gospel we've been studying, also wrote several letters, and we have three of those letters in the, in the New Testament. One of them is called 1 John. And John, reflecting on why Jesus was sent to us in the letter of 1 John, writes these words. 1 John chapter 1, or chapter 4, verse 9. God's love was revealed among us in this way. John says, you want to know how God revealed, how he showed us his love? Look at this. Revealed us to us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then he says, love consists in this. You want to know what love is? John says, love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you want to know if God loves you? Do you want to know what God's love for you is like? Then look to Jesus. Look at him in all of his glory. Look at him on the cross. Look at him rising again from the dead. Stand in awe and wonder and adore him. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to you be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may you open our hearts and minds to see the glory of Jesus. And may we be supremely and fully and never ceasingly satisfied in that. We pray this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.